Hey, Mountain. How's everybody doing? Good to see you. Welcome, everyone. Can we say hello and welcome to everyone at all of our campuses? We are together. We are here. So, hey, everybody. Online crowd, we're glad you're with us. Thanks for joining us. It's good to be together. Have you ever um, given someone some advice? You dropped some wisdom on them. You, you just were helping them out. You were speaking the truth. You were just telling them what you know because you know it. And then they were just like, nah, I don't care. You know, or I, I don't think that's true, or I, I'm not going to listen to that. And then sure enough, what you said came true. Has that happened to you? Let me see your hands. Yeah, yeah, of course, it happens to all of us all the time. Yeah, you don't get taken seriously all the time, right? So this happens all the time in life, doesn't it? So it happens in sports. It happens. Every coach knows what this is like. Every parent in the place knows what this is like, right? It, whether it's baking or fly fishing, whatever, a million things in life, this happens. But here's the question that every one of us has to answer today. What if uh, Jesus was serious? Like, what if he was serious? Like, what if he actually intended for us to do the stuff he taught us to do? Now, some of you are like, well, that's what we do. That's what we do. We're Christian. We're Christian people. We do. I wonder, what if, what if Jesus was serious? Maybe we should flip it. What if we got more serious about Jesus? And took him seriously. One of the things that's kind of in my mind about this, this series we're jumping into is that we, we, I think we all know that there's kind of a problem um, at hand. Uh, you know, Christians are, are little Christs. We're together. We're the body of Christ, right? But there is a problem. I think we can all admit that, you know, we're supposed to look like Jesus, but that sometimes we don't. Fair enough? Yeah? Okay, there's a lot of reasons that um, we're not as popular with the surrounding culture. Um, there's a lot of reasons for that. I get that. But I think a lot of Christians have a kind of imagined persecution complex, like it's because we're so holy and good, and we all recognize that Christianity is not at the center of our society like it maybe once was, you know, and maybe disrespected. People don't trust the Bible like they once did. We know all of that, right? There's a secular worldview that's now kind of the, the, the center stage. And when Christians get pushed to the side like that, we don't want your religious stuff around here. Leave us alone, the world says. One of the ways that Christians sometimes respond is we want to fight. We want to get after it and take it back and let's go get it and us faithful Christians are victims and we're going to retake the land for Jesus kind of thing. You hear a lot of this. Get into a culture war about it. I, I, I love what an author, Sky Jathani, says about this. He says, what if we actually have that backwards? What if, what if the real underlying problem afflicting Christians today is not that we take Jesus too seriously and that's why we're ignored what if the real problem is that we have failed to take him seriously enough? And a watching world just isn't that impressed with how we live sometimes. What if the real reason that some people think, well, Christianity is irrelevant. What if the real reason for that was not that we're just too good at obeying Jesus and they don't like it? What if it was because the opposite was true, that so many people who do identify as Christians actually kind of live however they want and look pretty much like everybody else? What if the reason they don't take 
us seriously is because we don't take Jesus seriously. So what if Jesus was serious? I know it's kind of a cheap pot shot. You hear people say, you know, Christians are hypocrites. It's an easy, most of the time it's just a cop out and some excuse for a person. It doesn't hold water a lot of times. I get that. But the sobering truth is there's been a lot of really extensive studies that have shown kind of what probably most of us suspect, and that is that a lot of people who identify as Christians today actually live, sadly, pretty much like the rest of the world. Studies just show that, that for the most part, Christians are the same as the surrounding culture when it comes to how we pursue pleasure, our materialism, our self-centeredness, our sexual morals, um, our propensity for you know, what we do in our ethics, our marriages, our divorces, our, our porn usage, our spending habits. So maybe the problem isn't it isn't Jesus, it's his followers. Scott Jathani is the name I mentioned. He wrote a book by the title, What If Jesus Was Serious? And so we want to give him credit. We stole that title and some of the concepts in that book for what we're talking about. But he hit me between the eyes when he, when he put this quote. Listen to this. See if it doesn't hit you too. He says, if we want the culture to take Jesus more seriously, maybe we should try it first. Ouch. Now, those are strong words. Maybe I made you all defensive. I don't know. But what we're going to do is we're going to dive in to some of the most profound and important teaching in the Bible that comes from Jesus. So if you've ever kind of wanted to know, like, what's some of the core teachings of Jesus, you're in luck. It's exactly where we're going to go over the next few weeks. It's something called the Sermon on the Mount. And what's interesting is it is the first recorded segment of teaching that Jesus had. In the, you go to the Gospels, it's the first thing there, Matthew chapter 5. Second, it's the longest section of teaching of Jesus in the Bible, anywhere. It's two whole chapters. It's huge. Lots of stuff in there. Third, it's probably the most central and foundational to everything else Jesus said. It's it's that important. And fourth, it's probably the best known. A lot of phrases in here are going to go, oh, I know that verse. But fifth, I'd say it's (laughs) it's probably the most ignored. Because we admire these words and we love to quote them, but if we're being honest, myself included, some of it, when we read some of this stuff we're about to read, some of it just seems so impractical. It just seems out of reach. Like, really? I mean, I live in the real world. That wouldn't fly in my place of business. If I did that, it wouldn't work. And pretty quickly, we just kind of assumed Jesus was just kind of throwing out like little things to go on memes or inspirational posters in the office that no one actually pays attention to. But what if, what if Jesus actually did intend for us to do this stuff, you know? And that would be, that'd be something because he said some crazy stuff. You know, you know, you know Jesus was, said some crazy stuff, right? You know what I'm talking about, right? Like he, Jesus says stuff like, okay. Let's just get it out there. He says, don't just, you know, get back at people. Don't just tolerate your enemies. What does he say? Love your enemies. Come on. He says, forgive people. You know what they did to me, though? I mean, he says, you can live without worry. Has he seen my life? Has he seen yours? What if he was serious about all this? He says, you can turn the other cheek. He says, your anger and your lust are really, really serious issues you need to take care of and let God help you with that. He, he says it's more important who you are on the inside than what you accomplish on the outside. 
Where, who is this guy? I mean, does he not know how things really work in the real world? I mean, that's kind of what it feels like, doesn't it? So basically, it comes down to this. Each of us has to decide if Jesus was serious and we're supposed to do this stuff or he was a fool. Because those are basically the only two options you have. So let's dive in. And if you're kind of unsure or unclear about what Jesus actually teaches, what the message of the Bible is, and you're not yet a follower of Jesus, this is a perfect time for you to be hanging around here and listen in. And, and, and it's, I just can't think of a better place to start because maybe you've been wondering, is it even worth starting? Because I know some Christians and I don't much like them. Just being blunt. But maybe, maybe if you just kind of could hear a little bit about Jesus, you'd, you'd feel differently. And if you're pretty sure you've got a good handle on who Jesus is and what he's doing, and it's like, I got the Christian thing. I, I hope you'll just brace yourself a little because I have found after all these years when I go afresh to this section of Scripture, it kind of blows me out of the water. Reminds me of this woman who went into the ER and, and her heart was like beating out of her chest, and they said, your heart rate is 240 beats a minute. It's like, she's about, she said, you know what they did? They took those paddles, fired them up, they laid her on the table, and they got everybody clear, and they went, okay, Zah! And they, they just popped her one, you know? And, and it, like, stopped her heart. They killed her, <laughs> I guess. But her heart started back up, and then it was in rhythm again. And I think some of us need that to happen to us. We're racing around. We're racing, 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 doing the Christian thing, doing the Christian thing. But sometimes, I'm not even sure, we're thinking, are we really doing, are we following Jesus? And maybe we just need to get in rhythm. And this passage of Scripture will do it, shock us and jolt us out of our preconceived expectations for what we think Christianity is all about faster than anything I know. So, Sermon on the Mount. Here we go. Are you ready? All right, let's go. Let's tear into this stuff. See how bad it is, right? Matthew chapter 5, verse 1 starts this way. Let's check it out. Matthew 5, verse 1. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up the mountain and sat down. His disciples came and gathered around him, and he began to teach them, saying, and now he's about to launch into it. Now, let me point out three quick things here, even in that verse. First, got to pay attention to what's happening just before this. If you flip your Bible over to Matthew chapter 4, what you see is this is the very beginning of Jesus' ministry. And this is not Jesus up on a hillside now with some kind of peaceful little monastery setting where he's like humming sayings and they're like, oh, that's beautiful. I'm going to write that down in my journal. No, 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 no. This is, this is a supercharged, tense environment and atmosphere. Everyone is amped up because chapter 4 says Jesus came and he said, I'm announcing a new kingdom and it's coming and it's right in your face and I'm about to tell you what it is. And then Jesus starts having the power of God run through him, and he starts healing people, like people who couldn't see could see, people who were, had demons, had the demons cast out, and everyone's like, what is happening? And they're thinking, this is it. This is the new kingdom that, that we've been praying for for centuries. It's about to land, and this guy is going to tell us what it is. And so Jesus has everyone kind of in a fever pitch. That's the first thing you've got to know. Second, it says Jesus goes up on a mountain. That's, that's significant. Mountains are always in the Bible, spiritually significant. Every single time you see a mountain, you know something's going to go down. And mostly it's where God meets people. You think of the Old Testament, whether it's Elijah, everybody was met on a mountain 
by God. The most important for the people was Moses. God said, Exodus 24, Moses, meet me on the mountain. What did God do? He says, I'm going to give you direct commands to guide my people and shape what this is supposed to look like. It was called the Ten Commandments. And he comes down. Where did it happen? Through Moses on a mountain. Jesus goes up on a mountain and they're going, uh-oh, here we go. And Jesus is setting himself up here as a new Moses who's coming now with words from God. And he's got authority. You have heard it said from Moses, but I tell you, he's about to say something fresh going down here. And third, it says Jesus sat down. Why did Jesus sit down? Was he tired from the hike? No. It's because in that culture, ancient Jewish culture in the first century, and really all through Greek and Roman culture for centuries, sitting down was what you did when you were in the place of authority. In fact, we still have a, a lingering of this in our society today. If you go to a university and it'll say, like, so-and-so's the chair of that department, it means they're the ones who they occupy the position of authority, and it still comes down to us that way. Jesus was saying, I'm sitting down in a place of authority, on a mountain, as a new Moses, to tell you about a kingdom that's about to open. And they gathered around him with a holy sense of awe and expectancy and eagerness about what God was going to do. And I just, my prayer was that you would do the same, that we could all do the same, to come at this, not like ho-hum, what's the verse, but but to come at it with, with some humility. Like you don't have everything figured out. Like you don't have everything in a box already and you don't need this. Because Jesus is about to announce something that's different than the world runs. Come humbly, receptive, teachable, ready to take Jesus seriously, and then come hungry. Like I, need, I want whatever God might have for me. Come hungry. This isn't some TED Talk or podcast or lecture you can sleep through and still pass the test. This is the Son of God, the new Moses, coming with a directive from God to say, this is what life is like in the kingdom. Let's gather around. Let's, let's listen up. Let's lean in, okay? Because this is the king, and he's announcing the values of his kingdom. And how does he begin? <clears throat> Here's how he begins. He begins by describing the blessed life. Isn't that interesting? He starts by saying, I want to describe for you what is a life of meaning and depth and purpose and satisfying uh, joy and peace. What is that really all about? And secondly, he's going to answer this question, how can you get it? And it was, it was a, this is a message that's not just timely for a bunch of peasants on a hillside 2,000 years ago. Everybody wants that today. We're hungry for this. What's the key to happiness and how can I find it? So he begins with words that have come to be called the Beatitudes. Everybody say Beatitudes. The Beatitudes, right. It comes from a Latin word, I believe it's pronounced Beati. Beati. And eight times he begins with that word Beati in the Latin text. It's Beati, Beati, Beati. Blessed are you. Blessed, blessed, blessed are the blessed, blessed, blessed. It comes from another Greek word which described the state of the gods when they were extremely fortunate. When you are super, super well off, when you are 
at the, the, the ultimate expression of well-being and deep-seated wellness and wholeness when you are fortunate, when you are happy. It's a way of saying, fortunate are you, happy are you, congratulations to you when this happens. That's what the word really means here, and everybody's desperate for this. You know what? The, the titles in, in bookstores that have, been, have the word happiness in them have multiplied from about 50, 50 titles a year a few years ago to like over 6,000 titles a year today, meaning everybody's trying to figure out how to find happiness. The same time period has corresponded. We're all less happy than we've ever been. And the last couple of years haven't helped much. And Jesus says, I want to help you find that life that you're looking for, and I can give it to you. Let me unpack it. And it starts with the blessing, the, the beatitudes of God. It's a new kingdom and a new heaven. A new, a new kingdom of heaven. Now that phrase is also going to show up a bunch of times when we read it. You'll notice in a minute. The kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of heaven. What is it? It's the kingdom of God. Same thing. It's not talking about heaven. It's not talking about the church. It's talking about, it's talking about, the king, it's talking about God's reign and rule. When a new administration comes to power, what they do is they say, here's how things are going to work in our administration. I'm going to bring in my staff. Here are the values. Here's the metrics we're going to use. Here's the policies. Here's the principles. And this is the vision we have. And that's what Jesus is doing in the Beatitudes right here. He's saying, I'm the king. And when I finally reign, when you allow me to be in charge, there's an agenda I bring and values I hold. And I want to describe for you how it works in my kingdom. And it is so upside down from the way the present world works. Here's what he says. Let's start in verse 3. Matthew chapter 5. Jesus says, you know, God blesses those who are poor and realize their need for him. For the kingdom of heaven belongs to that one. God blesses those people who mourn and grieve for they will find comfort. God blesses those people who are humble. They'll inherit the whole earth. God blesses those people who want to obey him and hunger to do the right thing and want everyone to be treated right, for they will be satisfied. God blesses those people who are merciful, for they will be treated with mercy. God blesses those people whose hearts are pure, for they will see God. God blesses those people who make peace, for they will be called the children of God. God blesses those people who are treated badly for doing right. They belong to the kingdom of heaven. God will bless you when people insult you, mistreat you, and tell you all kinds of evil lies about you because you're my followers. Be happy and excited about it. You'll have a great reward in heaven. People did all these same things to the prophets who lived long ago. <laughs> I told you it was a little different. Let's, let's, uh, let's unpack it a little bit. And first, I want to just tell you a little bit how to think about it. One of the things that's important to realize whenever we look at the Sermon on the Mount is to remember this isn't a to-do list. Okay, number one, if you're taking notes, I'd write it down. This isn't a to-do list. This isn't a list of things you got to do. What it is, is it's good news, okay? It's like, ah, at last. It's not a command. It's, it's an announcement about what it's like 
when God starts blessing the people who need it most. So you don't have to go around and start trying to figure out how to be humble or poor in spirit, how to mourn. If you're not mourning, it's like, oh, no, it's just reminding you that when you find yourself in that spot and the world tells you you're a loser and down and out, no, no, no. You have profound hope because now God is blessing even those on the bottom. It's an upside-down kingdom. The second thing, another way to say it might be this way. These are not prescriptions. They're descriptions. You see the difference there? You know what a prescription is, right? When you go to the doctor and she writes a prescription, it's a command, essentially. Go do this, take this, stop doing that for three weeks, right? But the Beatitudes are not like that. When it says, blessed are those who mourn, it's not saying, now go mourn. Go first, get poor. Second, you know, uh, go be a peacemaker. Now get a pure heart, and then you will get God's blessing. That would be prescription. That's not what this is. Not stuff you're supposed to do. He's not talking about how to go get blessed. He's describing who is blessed in God's kingdom. Because when God's in charge, everything's different. So they're descriptions of who's blessed by God. The world says, well, it's the strong people. We all know that. It's the powerful people. It's the people who have it together and have money and friends and a happy life. Right? We all know that. And Jesus turns it upside down and says, you know what? The weak and the sad and the overlooked, the losers in God's, in God's family, they're the ones who are going to be well off. So these aren't ideals to go strive for. I'm going to try really hard to be meek or a peacemaker so much as when you find yourself there, and you will, when you're weak and you got nothing and you're on the bottom, and you got nothing to hold on to, and you're empty and scared and alone and poor, at that moment when you don't have anything, in God's kingdom, you've still got Him, and that's enough. And in fact, that's all that matters, and you'll have the blessed life. It's not a to-do list. It's a good news list. It's a way of describing what happens when heaven invades earth and God gets his way. Now, let me just share a few things with you here. We've got a couple minutes left. Let me share a couple things. Number one, if Jesus was serious, then you know what? This means losers win, and no one is beyond being blessed. Okay? Does that sound like good news to you? Well, if you didn't say yes, it's because you don't think you're a loser. But you are. And this is good news for you, okay? If Jesus was serious, then losers win. And, and no one is being serious. We're so busy trying to win on the world's terms. This doesn't even sound like good news because we're like, I'm an American. I'm pretty much on top. I'm not getting bombed. I'm fine. You think you're already happy. We got these shrunken down little versions of blessed that we think are good enough. And Jesus says, oh, just you wait. There'll be a day when you'll want the good news of the kingdom of God. This is good news for losers. When you don't have strength and all you have is God, you're still in a good place. I read this sentence this week. If you want to, if you want to be happy, stay off social media. Um, it referenced a study from the University of California that the more you use Facebook over time, the more likely you are to experience negative physical health, negative mental health, and negative life satisfaction. It's killing us and making us sick, all right? 
And psychologist Gene Twenge reminds us it's especially harmful to young people who looks, look at all these so-called highlight reels of everyone else, and then what do you do? You compare yourself, and you come away inevitably feeling dumb and depressed and inferior compared to all these, you know, no one wants to admit they're all fake and posed, but the, these beautiful pictures of what's going on in the hashtag blessed lives all around us on, on Facebook and Instagram. And we compare our unglamorous, pitiful life and our frumpy body and our grumpy family and our dumpy house and our bad hair, and it gets us all depressed. And this isn't new because of social media. This is an underlying thing that's been going on in human history to project a positive image to people, even if it's a false image, we'd rather do that. In the time of Jesus, it was a big deal, this thing. In the ancient Jewish culture that he was talking to, he calls it out. Because they had very clear ideas about what was hashtag blessed. And again, in that culture, here's how they thought about it. Here was the logic. If you're healthy, you're not sick, you don't have any disease or leprosy or something like that, you're, you're powerful, you're kind of important in the social strata, you're rich, you're respected, and you're educated, well, then you were favored by God, they thought. And in other words, if your life looked good, it must be because you were good. God was blessing you for your religious connection to God. That's who they thought was blessed. And so people so desperately wanted to be perceived as blessed, what'd they do? Well, they worked very hard to project a positive public image of being blessed, even though it was a false image sometimes. Because a lot of people back then, and a lot of people today, think that the truth about your life is less important than what people think about your life. And Jesus says, it's not that way in my kingdom. I don't want to play that game. Let me tell you who's truly hashtag blessed, Jesus says. And it's not who you think. And he goes against the grain. He says, it's not all the smartest people who have the best reels on Instagram. It's not all the people with good families and known as great leaders who have the right friends. Jesus turns around and he blesses those that no one blesses in a countercultural way. And it reminds us that no one is beyond the blessing of God. Even the worst losers, the dropouts, the sad, hum humble, destitute, desperate people, even the people society curses and considers worthless are first in the kingdom of God. First. No matter how pitiful and sad our lives become, when you don't have a shiny reel to post, you can still be blessed by God. That's a really different way of living and thinking about people, isn't it? I mean, we kind of know it, but do we do it? How do you look at people? And can I remind you that no one is beyond God's blessing because of who Jesus actually was, who embodied the kingdom. He didn't just talk about it. I mean, he himself looked like a loser. He was a servant, not a king, a humble carpenter, not a billionaire. He was a teacher on a mountain, not a prince in a palace, right? His followers were unimpressive. His ministry ground to a halt when they killed him and chased all his followers away. What kind of kingdom is this? The kind where by his wounds we are healed. That kind. By his death we have life. That kind. 
Where, where we are blessed because of his blessing from his cry on the cross, Father, forgive them, we find forgiveness. It's upside down and unexpected, but it's beautiful and it's blessed. And then he says, you follow me. You be a servant. You be humble. You take up your cross. You don't be afraid to die because you're going to turn it around too. And that is how you become a winner. Not by the way the world says. You can be hashtag blessed when you follow Jesus like that. The second thing we can talk about here is that if Jesus was serious, then we're going to trust God more and politics less. That was one of the things he taught. And we got to have politics. We got to have governments and all that, but we would probably trust in them a little less. And I don't mean just governments, but I mean like the way we get political, even in the way we try to manipulate others. Jesus says, blessed are the meek for you will inherit the earth. Let me talk about that for a minute. The word earth there is the same word for land. You will, inherit, you will get the biggest inheritance, not by being strong and mighty and taking it over, but by being meek. How does that work? Well, you got to think a little bit. Go back in the Old Testament. God's blessing was always linked to the promise of land. Uh, you're going to enter this promised land. The way you do it is you're faithful to God and you'll inherit the land. You'll inherit the earth. Unfaithfulness to God meant you would lose the land. And you'd be forced into exile, and that's exactly what happened. Even when the people of God then in Israel in their history returned from exile, even then, they still didn't get to possess it very fully because the Romans were running the place. By the time of Jesus, those hated pagan Romans, sinners, were running the whole country and humiliating the Jews. They were home in the promised land, but they were still in exile. It was horrible. So, some of the Jews said, we're not going to stand for it. We're going to do something about it, doggone it. They were called zealots. They were the patriots of the day. They were the, they were the um, freedom fighters. They were, the, they were basically terrorists who, who believed in the world's violent ways to achieve what they thought were God's goals. I mean, after all, you said we're going to inherit the land. We're just going to help God out a little bit. So they were religiously motivated but they used the world's methods. Here, listen, they thought they were helping God's cause, but they were using the world's ways. Let me say that again. They thought they were helping God's cause, but they, they didn't do it by God's kingdom. They used the world's ways, force, power, control. They were tired of waiting, and I get it. Who wants to be meek when there's something really important going down? Who wants to be humble and wait? So we use our power and our violence and our anger and Jesus says it's the other way around. Actually, in my kingdom, the ones who actually inherit the earth are the humble, the compassionate, the ones who make and seek peace. And this is pretty relevant for us because we live in a land of us and them, don't we? And it's easy to be a zealot and get political, not just in the capital P way, but I mean like just, I don't know, I'd rather use the world's ways to coerce a workmate or force power up on my kid, or induce fear or humiliation, or use my money, or use our lawyers, use our guns, use our personality to force our way. When we do stuff, even if we think we're doing God a favor, but we do it in the world's ways, Jesus says it's not the way. He who has ears to hear. Another thing Jesus teaches us here is that, it, it, well, if he's serious, if Jesus is serious, then images and everything. Images and everything. This is big for us because I, I think we have a hard time stopping ourselves from judging other people and even ourselves based on outward appearances, don't we? It's 
hard. We kind of know you can't judge a book by its cover, but still it's hard for us to stop. We size people up by their circumstances, their wealth, what they wear, what, you know, whatever. And we do the same for ourselves. We put our own value on ourselves by how well we're doing on outward appearances. And Jesus says, I'll tell you who's really blessed. It isn't determined by your appearance or your money in the bank or how things look or your social media reel. Because image isn't everything. Jesus says, in fact, it's nothing. Image is nothing. See, the religious leaders in his day, they were all about following all of the religious rules meticulously on the outside. But Jesus recognized that on the inside, they, they were far from God. And he calls it out. He says, you know, you, you, remind, you remind me of a tomb. It's like all whitewashed on the outside. It looks great. The garden's there and the sign's there. Tonight. But you roll the stone away inside. It's like a bunch of rotting dead stuff that just reeks. And that's what you're like. That wasn't a very good compliment. He paid him. The word he used was hypocrites. I can see your heart, Jesus says. My kingdom, I look at the heart, not the outward stuff that impresses everybody about how your life's all lined up. It's like, I don't care about that. That's not real. Images and everything. He called them hypocrites. The word hypocrite actually just means actor. In those days, they had these big masks, the big ones. They would put it on. They literally, so it was literally like being two-faced. They had the real face and then the one they showed everybody. That's what a hypocrite is. You kind of got one life and you're, you're, you're living it in two directions. Who you are to everybody else. And Jesus says, what matters to God is not who people think you are but who you are when no one's looking. Blessed are the pure in heart, not the smooth of tongue, the impressive of appearance. Let God shape your heart. So it's not you can act good, but be made into the kind of person that loves the kingdom. So can I ask you, who are you when no one's looking? Who are you becoming? Like, if the trajectory you're on today just keeps going, who will you become? You know, we're in a season of Lent, those six weeks that lead up to Easter, and it's a time to think about where am I off track with God? Where am I running or denying God? Joel 2 is a great Lent passage for us. It says, the Lord says to us, turn to me. While there's still time, give me your hearts. Return to the Lord your God, for he's merciful. That's potent and powerful, isn't it? There's so much more that we could uncover in the um, Beatitudes today. I want to just drop down on one of the Beatitudes for just a moment and then close. And these, by the way, are what you'd call beautiful attitudes. That's one way I've heard them described. Don't you like that? Beautiful attitude kind of sounds good, doesn't it? Because attitude is everything. And the world says if, you're, if you happen to have a lot of happy happenings, well, then you can be happy. That's what the world says. If you happen to have a lot of happy happenings, then you can be happy. But if you happen to not have happy things, then you can't be happy. Isn't that right? Isn't that what the world says? And Jesus says, look at this. Matthew chapter 5, verse 3. Blessed are the... Oh, no, that's not it. Matthew chapter 5, 4. Here it is. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. 
Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Because of Jesus and what he has done and the promises that he makes, it says that when bad stuff happens, when your heart is broken, when the wheels are off and you're sad and you're a mess and you can't get out of bed in the morning, you can still be blessed because you can find comfort in the presence of God. You can find presence in the comfort of God and comfort in the presence of God. If I asked you, you, know, you go to the doctor and he asks you, where does it hurt? If I ask people today, where does it hurt? It's like everywhere. Everywhere you look, it hurts. We've been through a rough couple years. Some of us are still kind of reeling from some of that. Wherever you look around you, the person next to you, people you work with, your neighbors, there's pain everywhere. All of us know that. It's been a rough couple of years. Anxiety's on the rise and marriages are struggling and isolation lingers. Jesus said, John 16, in this world you will have trouble. Anybody get an amen to that? Amen. amen. Jesus knows what he's talking about, I guess, because we got some trouble, right? In this world you'll have trouble. Mourning is part of that trouble, and it describes anyone who's had their hopes up in life for something, only to see it kind of crumble. Anyone who, who has had a dream fall apart. Anyone who longs for something that hasn't come about. Mourning is for all of us who are human because we live in a broken world where we see sin and sickness and it's infested everything and we know it's not the way it's supposed to be. And Jesus himself knows about this. He himself was despised and rejected, considered a man of sorrows. He wept at the tomb of his friend he has huge compassion for hurting hearts. He becomes like a magnet for those who are mourning in his kingdom. He doesn't ignore them and say, sorry about that. He, he draws toward us to fill up that empty place with himself and that love. The presence of God brings the comfort of God. Psalm 34 says, the Lord is close to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. I'm guessing that some of us are right there in that place. If Jesus was serious, the last thing I wanted to share with you here is this. Then we will find comfort by clinging to him in hard times. That one seemed to me to maybe stick out as maybe one of the Beatitudes that we need to cling to the most right now. If Jesus was serious, then if you cling to him, you will have comfort. And the world doesn't understand that. I wonder if he thought of Psalm 23. Psalm 23, remember, it says... Um, God's like a good shepherd and he takes care of us. When we get depleted and discouraged and wounded, uh, you know, he's there providing still waters and all that. And then in verse 4 it says, sometimes though, I'm not by still waters. Sometimes I'm not by green pastures. Sometimes life really sucks. And you know what? When it does, even, even then, even, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death itself, I will fear no evil. Why? For you are with me. The presence of God brings the comfort of God. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. And this is the truth that Jesus is echoing in his kingdom. It doesn't say life will always be happy and good. That you'll fly through with butterflies and rainbows and puppies every day. But it does say when you go through even death or hell itself, when you do, you don't have to freak out because you're not alone. 
and you're going to be okay because God says, I am with you. With you always, even to the end of the age. And he brings his spirit and he breathes his spirit. And I just, I just wonder if someone needs to have that breath of the spirit just breathed on you today. When Jesus' disciples were all freaked out, after he died, they buried him and they were like, oh no, it's over. And they go to an upper room and they're hiding away because they think we're next. What they don't know is Jesus is alive and Jesus comes and he walks right into the room and he appears to them. And the Bible says that he just breathes on them, his Holy Spirit. And he says, I give you my peace. Can you just imagine Jesus right here in front of you? wherever you may be and whatever you're dealing with, because we're all kind of in an upper room sometimes, just like something's not right in my life. I'm one of those people who's mourning something. You've lost something. You're grieving something. And Jesus is right here. No mask or anything. He's just going to breathe on you. (sighs) His Holy Spirit. Do you need the breath of God just to fill you, to help you and to bless you? You see, without God's kingdom, we're hopeless. It's all up to us. I don't know about you. I look around the world. I don't think we do such a great job of running the place. But in God's kingdom, there's always hope. And one of the reasons for hope is that we can cling to the presence of God. And that brings us comfort, even in the midst of our mourning. Well, we could go through every one of the Beatitudes. We're going to move forward in the Sermon on the Mount next week. I just want to tell you about one last thing before we pray. And that is that we have created a special kind of video um, podcast, if you will, where we're just sitting down with um, some of the leaders here at Mountain and we're just saying, what are the questions that this Sermon on the Mount is raising and how could we go after them? Jesus talks a lot about heaven, for example, in here. And we don't have time to preach a sermon on heaven, but we sat down and had a conversation to talk about it in a kind of very relaxed, non-preachy way. Here's just a short clip to give you an idea of what this tool is because I really hope that you'll subscribe to it and take advantage of it. So go ahead and watch the screen. I told everybody Ben is going to solve all <laughs> misunderstandings about I don't heaven. Know about that. Since you, you know, asked me to talk about it with you, I'm going to say, what does the Bible say? If somebody has heard what the average person that goes to church thinks heaven is, there's a, there's a possible chance that they didn't quite tell you what the what scripture's yeah. really teaching on it. Yeah. We run a little bit aground when we start talking about a place. I get a little barcode on my arm when I get baptized. When I scan now, I, I'm gonna go, whoop, you're That's going up instead of going down. So there's a lot of evidence that people are somewhere and that we don't just float around as little sort of spirits or ghosts. What's happening to me when I die? Gives you a, gives you a, little, uh, gives you a little idea of uh, what's going on with this video podcast. Here's what I hope you do. We'll put a number on the screen here. You can take a look at the number. Text the word LIFE, L-I-A. Get your phone out right now. That's how you will get the full video. You can then watch it. You can share it. You can also send back to that same number. Here's what I'd like to hear you guys talk about. We're going to do this during this whole series. Uh, It's going to be fascinating. It's going to be posted on YouTube. We'll just have some great conversations around really important issues. So text that number, that that word LIFE, to that number, and you can... um, See what's what, okay? All right, friends. There's so many other things in the Word of God. Um, what if we took it seriously? Let's pray. God, we, we thank you for your Word, which always challenges us. It comforts us. We've seen that today. But it also challenges us. 
So help us, Lord, to follow your word, to understand your word, and to see it set us free to a kingdom that is unlike anything in this world. Help us to to be drawn to Jesus, not to figure him out, put him in a box, but to just trust him enough to do what he says. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.